You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey everybody, I'm here with Kate Taggart. Kate is an engineering manager um, and I found Kate because I found a huge backlog of like engineering management content that was super interesting to me on Twitter. Um, Kate, do you want to say hello and talk a little bit about what you do? Yeah. Uh, Hi, so I'm Kate. Um, Currently an engineering manager at Stripe. I actually just joined. I think I've been here for about a month now. Um, And yeah, I've been an engineering manager for about five and a half years now. Before that, I was an engineer for a little over five years. Um, I spent a hot minute being self-employed for about a year in between. Um, yeah, that's, that's me currently in San Francisco, but, uh, my heart is still in Portland, Oregon, where I lived for several years. Hmm. So Kate, how did you get into tech when you first started? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I guess it's like, it's always a question of how far back you want to, you want to trace it, right? Like mm-hmm. if you were to ask me like, when did I actually turn this into a job? It would probably be, um, near the end of, uh, my college years. So I was studying applied math. And as part of that work, I did a lot of, uh, programming like simulations and things like that. Um, and my first job at right out of school was at a mathematical software company, uh, Mathematica for those of you that are familiar with it. So mm-hmm. I guess like you could say that's when I got into, uh, uh you know, the, the tech industry was, was through that. But, um, you know, like when did I become interested in computers? Uh, I was, lucky enough to, to grow up in a home where there was a computer. Um, and so I, I kind of liked messing around with computers from a somewhat early age. Um, I think I was about 10 when, um, the, the, uh, first like internet service provider set up shop in the like really rural part of Maine where I grew up. Um, Mm -hmm. and the first thing that I really liked doing that, I guess you could sort of call programming, but really it was more just kind of like mucking around, um, was changing the order of lines and things in the dial up script to make the computer make (laughs) like different beep boopy sounds. Um, I like to see like how much I could mangle the script and like still get it to, to dial in. So, um, I guess that's like sort of when I first started doing technically type things, uh, you know, whether or not we want to say that's like when I really got sold on the industry or not, I, maybe that's up for debate, but Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was that first experience in the industry like? Yeah. Um, so it was, I thought at the time that it would be a temporary stop. Um, I had always thought that I would go on to grad school for a while. I really wanted to be either like a math or physics professor. Um, but after I had been, um, you know, working, you know, in, in a profession for a couple of years, um, I, uh, felt a little bit hard pressed as far as like going back to school and being a poor student again. And it, uh, it was nice to mm-hmm. be financially independent and whatnot. Right. So, um, I ended up sticking with it. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, what kind of technologies and stuff did you work with then? Yeah, that's a good question. So in my first role, um, we programmed in like Mathematica's proprietary language, which at the time was just called Mathematica. But I think since it's become called the Wolfram language, Hmm. um, it's, you can kind of think of it as like a variant of Lisp. So um, in like 2008 or whenever this was my first job, 
Um, I was working in a functional language like way before functional programming became super cool. Um, <laughs> in fact, like finding my second job was kind of hard because um, so I stayed at Wolfram for about three years. Um, and when I try, was trying to find my next role, um, a lot of places I, I heard from, they were like, no, like you don't have any professional, like object oriented language experience. And I was like, nope. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, sorry. Like your experience just isn't relevant. So, um, finding my second job was kind of hard and, and, um, I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't like slightly salty these days now that functional programming <laughs> is like all like, you know, it's super, super popular and whatnot. And I'm like, it was so hard for me to get my second job. Um, but, but I did, uh, what I ended up doing next was, um, I worked at the University of Illinois for a while um, in a research group there. They focused on uh, power grid security and reliability studies. Uh, we partnered with a variety of other universities and research groups and government agencies as well. Um, the research group was um, a, a lot of uh, computer programmers as well as some electrical engineers. And we worked together to, to run experiments and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you came from this almost academic but highly technical background even in, in your early jobs. So how did that translate to like your technical career as you grew? And other than like making it difficult for you to find those first jobs, has it impacted the way you interact with other programmers and then the way you think about technology now? Sure. I mean, I definitely think I, um, I, this is, this is a question that I've wondered about from time to time. Like, do we, those of us who have kind of found our niche, like, did we get there intentionally or do we all just kind of accidentally fall into it? But mm-hmm. not, not accidentally in like a completely unguided way, but just because we happen to gravitate towards the things that we like doing. And then after several years of that, you're like, oh my God, I'm actually quite good at this thing that I just kept doing so well. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would say, you know, my experience uh, originally, like, like originated from definitely a little bit more of like an academic um, type setting, uh, I would say like one way that that's played into my, like the, the management half of my career where I've been more at like uh, SaaS companies doing, you know, either like monitoring infrastructure management. I've always been on kind of like backendy teams, whether that's like application layer backendy team or slightly a little bit more like DevOpsy, um, like operational support and whatnot. I think one thing that has really stuck with me from the earlier days of my career is an appreciation for systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, the, the sort of applied math that, that I studied focused a lot on like systems and their internal dynamics, um, which is very readily applicable to production systems, uh, like mm-hmm. for fast products, right? Um, and same same thing, even honestly, a little bit with the, the power grid work as well. Um, you know, it, again, it's like dealing with these interconnected networked systems, um, which is like, there's a lot of intuitive reasoning about uh, complex systems that I feel I've brought with me into uh, the current stage of my career where, you know, I, I do have to reason about the constellations of services and how things interact with each other, um, which is an angle that, uh, you know, I, I, I know I'm not like the only one with that particular perspective, but um, I find that oftentimes there are things that I have to offer that are kind of unique in that way. Yeah, no, that seems like, you know, the direction that a lot of people come from the like less technical side, especially now with people coming out of boot camps and self-teaching and that kind of thing. So you kind of come from the complete opposite direction where you come from the 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 more abstract, even though it's applied mathematics, still more abstract. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's 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 interesting, you know, when I uh, when people ask me for advice about how to like get into the tech industry or things like that, because um, to a certain extent, like uh 
you know, maybe my exact path is not super repeatable, right? Because like, I still come from like, kind of like, like another STEM field, right? Like, it's kind of adjacent. But at the same time, like, not having a formal CS background did, uh, you know, make it difficult to find roles when I was earlier in my career. Um, and so like the, the advice, the way that I kind of package up the advice to be more generally applicable is, um, you know, especially earlier in your career, focus on roles that will leverage the skills that you have. Um, so like I had talked about it being kind of hard to find my second job because I had had three years of experience in a functional language and like nobody wanted to hire me for, for that, um, at least not, you know, shops that didn't use functional languages, which are very far between the, in those days. Um, but one thing that I ended up doing in that search for my second job was focusing on uh, roles that did have, you know, some sort of very like sciencey element to it, right? I think I mm-hmm. also applied to um, you know, kind of like NASA satellite software program, like still super bummed I didn't end up working there because work like building software for satellites sounds pretty cool. But, um, you know, like that would have made more use of my applied math background. I also studied physics in college too. I, I double majored. So I was looking for roles where, um, they needed people to write software, but if you had a really strong background in, in math or physics, it would it would um, be like an advantage in that role. So that was mm-hmm. how I ended up in this University of Illinois role, um, where I kind of talked my way in being like, I can program and I understand the physics of like what's going on in these grids. So um, I actually, in that particular role, ended up being a translator a lot between the two halves of the group, like the people that had the, the more traditional CS background, computer programmers, and then the electrical engineers, um, because oftentimes it was like, uh, the computer programmers doing the work of turning the proposed experiments from the engineers into like actual simulations. And so, um, yeah, like uh, expressing how I could be an effective translation layer between the two groups was like a really effective way to get my foot in the door there. So, yeah, does that still follow you now when you're you're at like these larger SaaS companies? Um, I mean, I would say like in, in any role as a manager, you're going to be doing a lot of translation, honestly, um, you know, whether it's from... A lot of the teams that I've managed have had a lot of uh, like internal dependencies as well as oftentimes external as well. But, um, you know, when you're running projects that have a lot of other teams that are either dependent on your team or you're depending on on other teams for things, um, you're going to spend a lot of time translating requirements among yourselves, like all the teams. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. There's that. But then also just the the other management work of like representing the company to your team members and representing your team members to the company. Um, Yeah, actually, now now that I'm like saying it out loud, like so much of management work (laughs) is translation. And so, yeah, that probably set me up very well for my current role. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe this kind of goes hand in hand with that. Maybe you've kind of answered it. But if there was something that you were able to distill down to one trait or habit or characteristic that you have, what do you think it is that that makes you good at? the role you're currently in? Oh, goodness. Um, like management in general or like my current specific management role? Uh, either one. You know, if, if, if you think that there's something that translates across management in general. Probably easier for me to answer like in the specific case, I, I suppose, first. So the, the team that I'm currently managing is our API platform team at Stripe. Um, mm-hmm. And so like we're accountable to both internal and external stakeholders. Um, it's, it's definitely, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do the dreaded thing. I'm going to use a sports analogy, but like, I'll explain it. <laughs> people don't like understand what I'm talking about. So, um, there's this, uh, like, like, um, uh, form that you can hold yourself in, in basketball called like the triple threat position, which if you're standing in this way, it's unclear to your defender, whether you're about to like dribble around them or pass the ball or shoot, like you just kind of have to be prepared to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like this, uh, the team that I'm currently managing, like, we have to be many things to, to many people. 
Um, and having managed a variety of teams that focus on internal users and external users, um, as, as long as like managing a variety of teams that have had to deal with different scales of services, I think um, is, is really important. Like that's probably the, the strongest thing that I bring to this current team is just like my breadth of experience managing different types of teams and, and working on different types of products. Um, yeah. As far as like management in general goes, um, something that's kind of e extrapolatable to, to that. Um, I would say kind of like a, I'm somewhat like indefatigable when it comes to trying to find kind of like the middle path forward. Um, so, you know, like consensus building, not necessarily always having to mean like 100% of people are on board for everything. Um, mm -hmm. But getting as close to that as you can in a way that's really authentic is, is something that like I put a lot of effort into. What are your thoughts on kind of the age old question of generalization versus specialization in the tech industry? Oh yeah, good question. Um, I think it I think it generally behooves people to get a sense for what they individually prefer. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, a theory that I'm uh, will will often tell like people that I know have already like heard me say this to them. Um, but I have this theory that like people have different preferences or like internal set points for different sizes of companies that they enjoy working at. And I think it gets like the heart of that is this, how much does this person enjoy being a generalist versus how much does this person enjoy being a specialist type question, right? Cause mm -hmm. if you, you know, join like a 12 person startup, you're going to be wearing a lot of hats. Um, and some people really like that. Some people less so some people are like, just tell me what project I'm going to be on. And I just want to go super deep on the technical thing. Um, mm -hmm. I think, both are incredibly valid and uh, you know, like depending on the size of company that you have, you'll, you'll need a certain mixture of, of both. I wouldn't even like, I wouldn't say when you're a tiny, well, okay. I would say when you're a very tiny, like 12 person startup, mm -hmm. you're going to need probably all generalists unless you're building a highly technical product in case like, yeah, maybe you will need one or two specialists. Um, but I think that one mistake that companies make as they scale uh, like, you know, into more like mid to late stage kind of startup realm is um, if they want to keep around their people who are happy to be generalists, you need to still have some engine somewhere in your company, maybe it's, you know, a, a, like a, a a chunk of your engineering that's working on new pro products or things like that, where you can still find homes for your generalists so you don't lose them. Um, but yeah, I think like it behooves everyone to, to get a sense for like, as an individual, do I prefer being more of a generalist or more of or a specialist? Because it will, it will inform like, uh, you know, your, your job search and, and where you're going to be happiest. Um, and maybe mm -hmm. it changes over time too. So, you know, be sensitive to the fact that like, maybe there are, are some, you know, you'll be a generalist for a few years and then you'll be like, that was super cool. And I think most of the time I like that, but man, I just like want to do something different for a little while. So it changes, you pay attention to it. Yeah. It, it sounds kind of like your journey has been a little bit of that where you started out as a specialist and moved towards a, a more generalized role. What has that been like? And have you enjoyed that move? Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. I guess everything is kind of a spectrum, right? I was, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, wow, at, like at this point in my career, I've definitely pigeonholed myself into the like backend services application layer or like in between application and infrastructure layer manager. Like that's just kind of who I am at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, so like from that perspective, it feels a little bit like I specialized. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I haven't mm, that much. Um, 
I uh, have managed some teams before that did have some a little bit of front end work on them and, and whatnot. So um, I suppose I still am a little bit of a generalist in, in some ways. Um, I, I do think maybe in like a few years time, though, I'm, I'm going to want to go uh, into more of like a, a specialist phase again, where maybe even like hopping back into an IC role. What is the kind of your take on the differences between being an individual contributor and being a manager? And what parts did you enjoy the most about each of those roles? Oh, man. Yeah, um, there's so many differences. Um, mm-hmm. Things I enjoyed about each of those roles. I think... Um, I'll answer I'll answer what I enjoy about being a manager first because that's like more top of mind since I'm currently mm-hmm. doing that role and then I'll like reach more into my memory bank. Um the things that I enjoy about being a manager um I I really enjoy the work of having to make signal out of noise. Um mm-hmm. so for example this this new role the uh, the team that I just joined um, we don't have a, a formal product manager. And so I'm going to be the one like putting my kind of product manager hat on to, to figure out like, what does our, you know, maybe doesn't have to be like a super formal roadmap, but, um, you know, deciding what sorts of things should be prioritized in the next few months. Right. So, um, and, and that, especially being like new to a company, I mean, pros and cons, right? Like, um, you get to chat with a lot of people, so that's good, but it's also mm-hmm. a little bit like drinking from a fire hose because you're trying to learn about this new company and product at the same time that you're like helping collect information to like influence decision making. Right. And so there's a little bit of a sense of like, wow, like I'm new here. What do I know? But, um, you know, you have the conversations, do the work, um, have faith in yourself. Um, so, but, so that's, that's one example, but I feel like the whole making signal out of noise thing, um, as like kind of a, an archetype that shows up a, in a lot of management work, I think. Um, so, you know, like when team members are talking to you about like problems that they're having, whether they're technical or interpersonal or what have you, um, you know, sometimes people, uh, you know, like sometimes people don't come to you with a, a you know, perfectly articulated, here's the problem and here's the key to feeling <laughs> better about this problem, right? You have to mm-hmm. kind of like read between the lines, ask clarifying questions, um, tr- try to reframe things in, in ways that will, you know, get more answers from this person that will, you know, help help shed light on like what's actually going on. So um, I think that that's, that's the part I like most about about management. Um, yeah, is the making making signal from the noise that feels very like, uh, uh, gratifying to me. Um, I would say the thing that I liked most about IC work um it's it's the more immediate sense of accomplishment right like it's mm-hmm. um you still uh you, as a manager you can still get that sense of man like i built a thing but it's definitely the long game right like um and, and actually the t- companies that i've tended to work at like as soon as i built a team to a point where i'm like oh man like this team is the self-sustaining machine of awesomeness at this point like i could just disappear and this team can like just keep going it's great like i've just been like plucked off to do the same thing for another mm-hmm. somewhere else in the company so um like <laughs> it's uh, and, and it takes like several months to get to that point right like if you're hiring it like starting a team from scratch or just one or two people you know building it up to like a six seven eight person team takes like several months. Um, and so, you know, you'll go several months and then at the end of that several month time frame, you can then finally look back and be like, Oh man, I built a thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. then, you know, you're whisked off to do it again somewhere else. So you like, don't even really get to sit around and enjoy the <laughs> thing that you build oftentimes, at least not like in companies that are growing quickly. Um, mm-hmm. whereas when you're an IC, um, you know, you get a much more immediate gratification from the things that you're building. Right. Um, 
and uh, you you hopefully get to enjoy them for for a little bit longer, right? We like we we try to move ICs a little bit less often, just for you know like for operational support uh, reasons and whatnot, right? Like if we were moving people among projects every few weeks, like no one would really have a chance to go deep and like deeply understand the service and why does it behave the way it does, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the it's uh, the the ability to like build things uh, more like more quickly get this like the feedback that like good feeling of like yeah i built a thing and then also get to stick around a little bit longer to enjoy it um so one thing you kind of mentioned i guess uh offhandedly is this idea of doing a lot of different things and trying to feel out like what the right thing is and not always knowing um because your career it sounds like has been fairly varied um like i said to me to me it sounds like you you've gone kind of through the gauntlet of each engineering role at least um has there been a period in your career where you really felt like in over your head or you experienced you know what people describe as imposter syndrome or something like it um i have definitely experienced imposter syndrome i don't necessarily know if i would categorize it as feeling in over my head Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think the, like the distinction there for me is that when I have been in situations where I've felt the feeling of like, oh man, like this is a big role. I'm really going to have to put a lot of work in to like keep up or like learn, you know, things I need to learn for this role or what have you. Like I've just kind of put in the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so like in, in that second, in that second job, right. Where, um, you know, I was using Python for the first time and was not like as, as, as skilled at it as the, the other engineers on the team. I just like, you know, took some time on the weekends to, um, to, to, to catch up. Um, and so in a pretty short time frame, I actually like gained a lot of confidence in my, my ability to, to read and write Python. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I don't really feel like I've ever been in a situation where I'm like, Oh no, like I'm in over my head and, and I can't do this. I, um, mm-hmm. I think, more often where you know my sense of like imposter syndrome has uh, come from is like it's the times when I forget that we aren't all experts at everything like there Mm -hmm. will be you know times where you know a team member will be discussing something and I'm like I don't I don't even know like what is this database that they're talking to me about like I've never uh you know like uh, like like uh, for example a couple of jobs ago like we one of the teams used Cassandra, right? And I was like, I don't even know like the first thing about Cassandra. Mm-hmm. And then I like had this feeling of like feeling uh, kind of imposter syndrome where I was like, man, should I already have heard of Cassandra? Like, is this a new database? Is it an old database? Like, so uh, like I'll, the times when like I get into that space, I like take a step back, remind myself like, hey, we've all had our own paths in tech. Clearly <laughs> not all of us are going to be experts on like every single type of database, right? Like just go to the page, read their docs, and then voila, you know this thing now and you don't have to freak out about it. So for me, when I get feeling imposter syndrome it's usually um, just a matter of like taking a deep breath, realizing we're not all going to be experts in everything, acknowledging the fact that there are areas in which I do have deep expertise, and then just like going and reading about the thing that I didn't know about. Yeah, so I actually have talked about that a few times um, in different conversations. And I, I one of the reasons I, I phrase that question the way I do, I talk a lot about like the idea of imposter syndrome or a thing described as imposter syndrome is because I feel like imposter syndrome has a very specific definition. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people, like and I would, I, I've said this before, I would never invalidate someone's experiences and say like, like they haven't felt it. Yeah. But I would say that a lot of people conflate 
the idea of like anxiety or being uncomfortable in your role with this, what is actually described as a syndrome. So it's, it's interesting to see people's like a take on that because some people think that any anxiety qualifies as imposter syndrome. And then other people feel that, you know, if you're not seeking the help of a medical professional and you're not like really struggling through this, you're not feeling imposter syndrome. So it's somewhere between those two things. It's just interesting to see people's opinions on what that actually is. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's another angle too, where, you know, like being from uh, like an underrepresented group, um, like there are definitely times where I worry that like other people think that I don't belong here. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's, that's, that's usually like, um, a, a fear that I'm, I'm like working through about like how other people see me. It's not really something that like comes from the inside. We're like, Oh, like I, I don't belong here. It's like, no, I, mm-hmm. I, I think I do. I, I just kind of worry how other people see me sometimes, but yeah. Yeah. I've heard that before too, especially, uh, in like the open source community, people having a fear of, uh, you know, some random person online says really rude things about your, your technical abilities or your background. And so you start to doubt yourself. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that fear of like, just prejudice perception. Yeah. Um, I, I will make the second half of my answer more like immediately useful, but um, <laughs> the first half of my answer is going to be, it's going to be a long game. Um, <laughs> been in, so I've, you know, been in my career for like over a decade now. Right. Um, and that one feels really weird to say. And two, like I, it's, it becomes a lot easier over time to not take those things as personally it's it still hurts like it's never like gonna not hurt um but there's less of a sting when it happens because you can look back on all the other times that like you know someone's been kind of a crank towards you and be like yeah whatever but like i'm still here um and so the the more that you accumulate those times of like ah eh, whatever i'm still here um like that that, that will give you like a comfort and a confidence that is, is difficult to find as much in your early career. So like, okay, that's not, that doesn't really, you know, anyone who's listening that's like earlier in their career is like, great. Thank Kate. So like, just, you know, suffer through another like <laughs> five to eight years of this and I'll be fine. Cool. Um, so something that's more like immediately actionable than that. Um, you know, I think, um, oh, this is such the, the real answer is like, we need to fix the system, but since that's not like something we can just go out and do tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I encourage people to focus on what they enjoy. Um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting, like even thinking back to, I mean, like kind of, even when I was in college, right. Like I was always in, in classrooms where I was super outnumbered, you know, like studying applied math and physics, like there were barely any other like women or NB people in, in the classes I was in. So I feel like I've, um, gotten pretty like I, I came into the tech industry pretty prepared for that feeling of, of like mm, being a little bit of an, an outsider in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the thing that kept carrying me and, and still does honestly is like, I find this stuff really interesting. Like I love the work that I do. Um, I'm really excited actually for this, you know, new, new, new job that I'm in now. Um, and like, I would encourage people to, to, to return their focus to that. Like, yep, this person said something that was really crappy and like made you feel unwelcome. Um, but focus yourself on like why you're here and like why you love this work. Um, also make sure that you have a really good support group. That's really important too. You need mm-hmm. you to have people who deal with the same things that you're dealing with that you can talk to so that you feel, you know, not like you're losing your grip on, on reality and your own worth. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, 
definitely a, a kind of a healthy way to give yourself that sense of purpose and refocus on like why you're why you're there. What part of it, like your current role that you're going into, like really excites you? Yeah, um, I am excited to get to work on a product again that um, like people that aren't in tech have heard of. That's, that's <laughs> part of the reason why I'm really excited. So previously mm-hmm. I was at HashiCorp. Um, we, they do like infrastructure management tooling, right? Um, and like uh, no one outside of tech has heard of HashiCorp. Um, and so the way I would explain it, I was like, oh, you know, we provide tools for other companies to, you know, operate their applications or manage their fleet of infrastructure or things like that. You know, I kind of wanted to tell people like probably not a day goes by that you don't like do something online that doesn't go through like a HashiCorp tool somewhere. Like it's out there, but you know, no one's heard of it. Um, one thing that mm-hmm. I'm really excited about, uh, yeah. So at, at, at Stripe is the fact that like I'm working on something that people, you know, actually readily understand outside the tech industry again. Um, I'm particularly excited by the angle where, um, I, I, it's, I haven't heard it like publicly put in this way. Um, but I know this is kind of the internal sense that I've gotten where, um, we're, we're in the business of like opportunity extension, um, where we want to make it easier for people to compete like on, uh, you know, the, the online marketplace, right. We want to make it easier for people to start businesses from anywhere in the world. Um, and that particular, um, mission really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that mixed with my my other deep love, which is like developer tooling. Um, so I really uh, love writing software for other software people. Like uh, like if you you know to look through my resume, you'd see that like I've that's that's definitely been a fixture. So getting to combine these two things like on a product that people know what it is, but I'm still getting to do you know the the sort of angle on that that I really love is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So for people who want to get into the practice of writing software for other people who write software. Um, what's kind of your advice to, to break into that space? Oh goodness. That's a good question. Um, Oh, actually, you know what? I think I have a good answer for this. So, um, (laughs) my very first management role, um, I joined new relic just as a manager. I didn't like join as an IC and then go into a management role. I just went right into a management role. Um, and it was my first one and that's a whole other story. But, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the first team that I was managing there was their like internal tools team. So for those that don't know, like new relic is a, a application monitoring service. Um, but, uh, so like even, you know, the product itself was software for other software people. But uh, this first team that I was managing there was more internal facing to the company. So like we were working on tools for developers like internal to the company. Um, and that's a little bit of a lower stakes place to be either a first time manager or a first time engineer. Because if you make mistakes, the blast radius is pretty small, right? Like if we were to, you know, ship a, like some sort of internal development service and it was to go down, like the only people that we would really be hurting are like, you know, our fellow people in engineering who we really care about, but it's not like a $5 million deal is going to fall through because of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, if people want to get into the business of writing software for other software people, um, most companies have some sort of like internal tools type team. And I would recommend starting there. Um, The catch is that you don't want to get too pigeonholed into like exclusively like CICD pipeline work. You'd want to find some way to do a little bit more like services and tooling type work. Um, But there are, there are a lot of companies that do have teams like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, starting with that experience and then, uh, you know, snowballing it into bigger opportunities as you gain experience is is probably a good path forward. Yeah. Do you have advice for people who are afraid of becoming pigeonholed in in any discipline? Um, yeah, just don't do it, man. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's hard because I see when I look at people's resumes, when they're applying for roles that like I'm the hiring manager for, I try to push myself to be in a little bit of a creative mindset and to see ways in which their past experience might translate into the role that wouldn't immediately be obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I wish I had some examples kind of at the ready, but maybe I'll like take some time to do like a blog about this sometime or something. But um, I think like as a hiring manager, it behooves you to take a little bit of a, like a creative look at people's resumes. Um, that having been said, on the flip side, you can do this yourself as a candidate, like in your cover letter, um, suggest ways in which your experience, even though it may not seem immediately relevant, is mm-hmm. going to translate well into, you know, this particular role. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so on the topic of being a hiring manager, what's uh, what's something that, like, you feel like you didn't expect when you first stepped into that that more human side of engineering that you had to learn? Um, or you might just be able to say it was natural and there wasn't a lot that you had to learn. <laughs> I don't know. No, I won't say that. Um, I think, I think one thing that I figured out somewhat, somewhat early on was that work that I did to become a better manager, like made me a better person, like in my personal relationships, like friendships and and, and close relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. and also like vice versa, like work that I did in my personal life, you know, like through talk therapy or what have you, um, made me a better manager. And, uh, it was kind of nice to have that kind of um, like time investment in my own interpersonal skills do double duty, right? It's like, oh, cool. I, you know, learned some things about better negotiating and setting expectations. And like this serves me well personally as well as professionally. So um, I didn't, I didn't expect it to have such a um, like um, fluidity with like my personal life as well. Um, Cause I think like, I think, I think people who are truly great managers um it's not like you just go in and do a job and then you just kind of like forget about it later i mean yes work-life balance don't burn out like all of the the standard disclaimers apply um but there's a way in which you have to cultivate um it like there's a way in which cultivating your skills as a manager like changes you as a person and it shows up in all areas of your life and so i guess i didn't expect management to be this also like very personal journey for me too Mm mm-hmm Maybe as a like attack on question there, what advice do you have for people who want to become managers but are still in that engineering role? Just kind of the things that have been uh, valuable to you, and again, maybe unexpected. Yeah, so I would say if you're considering going into management, uh, find some low stakes way to sniff out if you th- if you actually do like it or not before fully committing, because um, it's you know pretty disruptive to to have like add a manager onto a team and then six months later be like, just kidding. And just like pull that person. <laughs> like management changes can be really disruptive. So um, find some kind of lower stakes way to, to sniff out. Um, one way you might do this, um, you know, asking for more leadership responsibilities on a particularly big project or something like that, or asking to supervise an intern for the summer or things like that. Um, mm-hmm. One, one way in which I um, kind of was able to, sense that for myself before ending up doing it uh, I, I like this wasn't the reason that i did it but it was just you know kind of the way things happened um so i took a year off from tech actually and i worked just as a self-employed math and physics tutor um mm-hmm. and being self-employed like it 
it definitely works some of that same skill set as being a manager, right? Especially around um, setting clear expectations, right? So I would sometimes, I would also do a little bit of like standardized testing, uh, like coaching as well with, with some of my students. You know, I'd have parents that would come to me and they'd be like, I want my kid to get like a 36 on the ACT. And I'd have to be like, <laughs> you know, like, like that's probably not going to happen without like, you know, like insulting their kid, but just setting expectations for like how much improvement from their kid's current ACT score they could reasonably expect in a, you know, six month time frame or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, which you're going to be doing all the time as a manager, like, you know, setting negotiating and setting expectations. Um, the other thing too is like that, that I picked up, uh, that, that I actually found that I really liked from that time being self-employed um, was holding comfortable space as much as I could for what like could otherwise be uncomfortable conversations. So say, you know, like uh, someone, you know, pays you with a check and you go to cash the check later and it bounces, um, you know, when you're self-employed, and just working for yourself, you know, not like as, as part of some small business or something that could be like your grocery money for the week, week right? So mm-hmm. like you have to go talk to this person that their check bounced. Um, like you can't ignore it. Um, and but like, you know, that's a potentially uh, difficult conversation, right? Because you don't know like what that person's circumstances are right now. So um, learning to have conversations like that in a way that like helped put people as, at ease as much as I could was something that I found that I really liked. Um, and that's definitely not for everyone. Um, there are, you know, people who go on to become managers and stay managers for a long time and still hate uncomfortable conversations. And and I would say that's probably an anti-pattern. Like if you don't derive joy from helping otherwise uncomfortable conversations be more comfortable, then like this is probably not your jam. Um, But yeah, so those are a couple of examples of ways that I was able to kind of test the waters of things that I was going to have to be doing as a manager um, and and found out that I really liked them before I, you know, went into like a formal management role. Yeah. So Kate, one, one question that I ask uh, everybody that I interview is uh, to share a thing that they're, they're, they consider themselves to be bad at. And, and the purpose of that is if there are people that look up to you in the industry or follow you and might think that um, you're someone who's successful and you have everything figured out, you can kind of dispel that and humanize yourself by sharing something you struggle with. So if, if you had to pick one thing, what would that be? Yeah. Um, I have a, uh, very bad case of like someone is wrong on the internet but (laughs) in real life when it Mm -hmm. comes to things that i have like ethically motivated convictions around so like if i feel like someone is doing something that's even like mildly discriminatory or like slightly unconscious biasy or something i have a really hard time not speaking up about it and Mm -hmm. sometimes that causes me to not take a step back and be more strategic about how I'm going to deliver that feedback. Um, but you know, then on the, on the other hand though, like I've definitely worked at places where I have tried to be really strategic and just like no change was being made and I probably should have just left sooner. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, um, I really like this expression about like dangerous personality traits that you like to keep around anyway, like keeping a pet tiger where it's like, it can be <laughs> kind of cool and useful sometimes, but you have to make sure you keep it on a leash because it's a tiger and it'll like rip your face off if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I try to like, I'm not, I don't think, I don't think the answer for growth for me here is to just care less. Like, even if it was, I don't think I'd be capable of it. I think Mm -hmm. the answer is for me to become a lot more thoughtful in the, um, like companies and groups of people that I surround myself with. Um, because like I, uh, making sure I'm at places that appreciate me speaking up 
if I am taking a step back and taking care to be strategic about it, um, making sure that I'm in environments that appreciate that effort. Um, Mm Because if I'm putting that effort in and not getting anywhere, then like, I'm just going to get frustrated. Nobody's going to be happy. Um, So yeah, I think the path forward is like making sure that I'm doing the work on my end to be strategic and not just like, you know, um, being reactionary. But at the same time, making sure I'm in a place where that I can speak up because I know that like, that's something that I need. What's like a, a, maybe an anecdote or a, a piece of advice you can extract from that where as a manager, you kind of had to balance your drive for that kind of justice or, or whatever it is um, with the like reality of having to be around, you know, diverse people that may not have the same worldview as you. Sure. Um, I think a really important thing as a manager is to make sure that well, I'll say the thing that probably everybody agrees with, and then I'll say the maybe slightly controversial thing. So the, <laughs> the part that I think everybody agrees with is that, like, as a manager, you shouldn't just be, like, you know, complaining to your team all the time about the things in the org that are bothering you because, like, one, super will bum your team out. And two, it makes you look ineffective because, like, if there are things in the org that you don't like, you're a manager. It's your job to go fix those things, you mm-hmm. know, like. My, one of my favorite things to say to newer managers whenever they're like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. Like, someone should do that. I'm like, yeah, that's you. Like, that's you now. Like, whenever <laughs> you hear yourself saying, someone should should do something about that. Like, it is now your job as a manager. So, like, okay, we all agree with, like, you shouldn't just be unloading on your team all the time. Um, however, I do think, though, it is important to talk to your team sometimes about the things that are upsetting to you in the org. Um, I think mm-hmm. that otherwise they can't trust you, right? Like if you are not giving them enough transparency, um, just, you know, especially into things that you find that are off, um, how can they really trust you to be transparent with them in general, even about things that don't have some sort of like ethic charge around them? Like, um, like just like, you know, project roadmap changes or things like that. Like how can they trust you to be transparent about that if you're not transparent about everything? Um, So, it's a really difficult balance to strike, right? Because, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're not just being a robot. And if there is a decision being made that you disagree with that, you know, as you're presenting it to your team, you can say why you disagree with it, but you also have to explain like why you signed on to like disagree and commit to this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you get to the point where you can't do that anymore, that's the time to leave. Like that's been every time that I've left, left a company as a manager is because I've gotten to that point where I'm like, I cannot tell my team with a straight face that I agree with this thing it means it's time for me to leave. Um, and, mm-hmm. and like, I've done everything I can do to prevent this decision going the way that it went and it still went this way and I still disagree with it. Now it's time to leave. Um, yeah, I would be really interested to hear if managers leave jobs for other reasons because like that's been, it's on like three, <laughs> three on that so far. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, how do you how do you make that decision? That seems like a really hard decision to make to kind of quit over over principles at a place. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm of the same vein. I, I had the same kind of tendency but it, it is something that a lot of people probably would struggle with yeah uh, i think a lot of people might put their career over kind of their their moral compass and so how have you been able to make that decision well at, at this point it is a pretty straightforward calculus for me um because i have seen what happens when i stick around longer than i probably should have and like i start mm-hmm. getting pretty frustrated um and you know not like flipping tables calling people names frustrated but you know (laughs) like sometimes some very pointed feedback to my superiors um that like you know is not accomplishing anything Mm -hmm. um so yeah i don't know i mean honestly i would say these days like it's it's actually pretty easy for me to make the decision to 
move on because like I I've seen what happens in the past when I don't move on when I should. Um, so yeah, I don't know. For th- these days, it's pretty easy. But again, that's like one of those hard one things that kind of only comes through experience. So your mileage may vary, I guess. But what's you know sounds like something that you've you've done a few times, and you're also kind of a, a you know at this point an, an expert on. Uh, I would I would imagine that kind of strategic feedback. So how do you typically uh, when you're not you know ready to to leave a place? try to give that feedback to your leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think the the first thing that you should always appeal to, because like they're there for a reason, hopefully, is your any sort of stated company principles or, you know, like principles of your particular business unit or whatever, um, like whatever the company wants to claim is true about itself, um, mm-hmm. start, start there. So build your arguments based on, I think we should make, such and such decision because it speaks to our principles of, you know, kindness and whatever. Um, and so if you, if you start there, that will, uh, it'll start by establishing a common ground that like supposedly everyone in the conversation is supposed to be working towards. Um, that having been said, company principles don't cover everything. Sometimes they aren't even that, you know, well adhered to. Um, and, uh, yeah, in, in either case, uh, the, you know, higher up that you're trying to persuade is going to have their own set of values too, right. That isn't necessarily covered by the company principles. And I think that's where, um, I was about to say a lot of us, maybe it's just me, maybe I just mess this up. Uh, so at least a thing that I have not done as well in the past until a little bit more recently in my career is just taking stock of what the like kind of unspoken values of various individual higher ups are um, because, you know, sometimes like if you're, if, if like you and, and this other person are just so far apart, then like, that's not, an, that's not an org you're going to be happy in. Right. Um, like not only is it going to lead to conflict, obviously, but the less obvious, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for impact that it's going to have is that, your work is not going to be appropriately uh, like uh, acknowledged or rewarded in that org. If there are things that you feel are important to be working on, um, and so you know you take on a little extra work and, and you focus on those things, um, and but you know it's it's a thing that you care about, not but it's not necessarily like. A, it, um, in line with like a value that a higher up has, right. Um, then like you're, it's, it's not going to be recognized, um, to make things concrete, like one point of tension in uh, a pastoral was, um, I've spent a lot of time at companies, uh, like very fast growing, like early to mid stage startups. Um, and I'm familiar mm-hmm. with a lot of like different processes and, and structures that need to be in place or, or don't have to be in place yet um, at various stages in like an engineering orgs growth. Um, and I was in a role where um, I was reporting to people who didn't really have a lot of the experience. They came from a lot more like larger corporate kind of environments that weren't growing as fast. Um, and so I was doing a lot of work, uh, you know, like helping uh, improve hiring processes and things like that because we were hiring really fast um, and I wanted to make sure that we were also hiring well. And so I put a bunch of time into just doing a little extra work here and there in our hiring process. But that wasn't something that was really acknowledged or noticed because the people, you know, that were in higher up leadership positions didn't really think the work I was doing was important because they hadn't really been out of business that stage. And so they were like, why is Kate doing like this? Like, this is nice work that Kate's doing to make Kate happy, I guess. But like, why do we care? Um, (laughs) 
um, you know, if if your values are not in line with with your leadership, like it's it's going to, like I said, cause the obvious frustration of like conflict of uh, and disagreements. But the less obvious thing is that like you're, you're there are probably going to be subtle ways that your work is not really acknowledged or appreciated. Also, yeah. How do you how do you kind of deal with the the feeling that you're not being appreciated? How do you internally deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, again, kind of going back to the importance of like growing your professional crew, right? Like people that you can use to help calibrate um, your your sense of like, am I being a little unreasonable here? Or is this something that I should be able to expect and I'm just not getting? Um, so making sure that you, and, and it's important to have people like peers at your own company and even not peers too, right? Like make make connections with people from various levels. Um, but at both at your current company, as well as at other companies too, right. And the, the other companies thing will become easier too. Like as you grow in your career and you have jobs at different places, like your network will just, uh, by default become more diverse as far as like where, where people are working. Um, but make sure that you, you have, uh, at least a little network at your current company too. Cause I think like just having someone to talk things through with um, as a sounding board is like the first step in figuring out how you're even going to deal with it. Right. Because maybe you find out that like, Oh yeah, I was totally in the right. Well, geez, what now? Um, or maybe you get some feedback where it's like, ah, okay, I guess I wasn't really like framing that the proper way in my head. It didn't have to be so confrontational. Let me try and take a different approach. So I think really the first step is just like making sure you have some sounding boards to, to determine like for you, what is, like, how, how do you really want to relate to this thing you're trying to figure out? And what is the path forward? So, Kate, thank you for sharing your experience and, and your perspective on the challenges of, of engineering manage- management, but also just being an engineer and, and especially high growth startups. Yeah, it was really great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.